Hey, everybody. I, uh, I got the flu this week. Um, I was expecting more sympathy noises, but okay, well, whatever. Um, I got it from my, my third child. I got it from Liam, and, you know, I was, I was recovering, and, uh, you know, I had kind of self-quarantined. It was fun reading about the coronavirus, why you have the flu, by the way. And uh, I would self-quarantined, and I had come downstairs, you know, feeling a little better, just kind of... And Liam goes, uh, hey, Dad, were you sick? Yeah, I was sick. That's why you haven't, haven't seen me. Thanks a lot for that, buddy. And he goes, uh, what did you have? And I was like, well, I had what you had, the, the flu. You, you gave it to me. That was very thoughtful. And uh, he said, did you have the coronavirus? And I was like, no, I didn't have the coronavirus. He was like, well, the coronavirus could kill you. And I was like, well, yeah, that's true. A lot of things could kill you. And he goes, no, no, no. The coronavirus could kill you, older men. <laughs> Somebody has been watching the news, I guess. I thought it was so funny. Um, anyway, uh, <laughs> I, I was, you know, it ha- this happened again this week. Uh, and I, this happens every week, and maybe this happens to you too, where I think about something that I would like to ask God. I would just like to sit down, and I, I, I have a list of maybe three or 4,000 questions I'd like to ask him. And just, just to get his, uh, his take on a few things. And a lot of it is just to ask him, like, hey, we're doing this. Are we getting this right? Is this, is this good? Are we, are we okay here? Um, and it would be so fascinating if there was a way that you could get information from God. You know? And I was thinking in, like, our technological day and age, I mean, if there was some sort of, like, central library you could go to and just get all the information that God wanted you to have, that would be pretty cool. And somebody could figure it out because somebody could put, I mean, uh, if you had to go somewhere, that could be tricky. So if they could create like a website, maybe, you know what I mean? Like put all the information that God wanted you to have in one like centrally located place. Wouldn't that be handy? And a website would be great. And maybe a website wouldn't work, but like some device that was portable even, that you could even walk around with and carry with you that had all the information that God was interested in you having, and if they could come up, I mean, Silicon Valley, San Jose, those guys could come up with something that was, you know, you didn't need batteries. That would be pretty great, too, if you could just, like, didn't require batteries, and it would just hit all the information that God wanted you to have in one place. If we had something like that, don't you think we'd be accessing that thing all the time? Like every time we had like a, uh, we were just like, I just want to know what God wants me to know. If we had something like that, that would just be amazing. And I don't know, maybe one of these days we'll figure out some way to create some sort of easy to carry portable device that we could access all the time that had all the information that God wants us to have. That would be really cool. Because if we had that, and if somebody were to tell me, hey, Patrick, uh, you want to binge watch Netflix? I'd be like, no way. I'm going to sit and access this information that God wants me to have. I would just re- People would, would look at that all the time. They would read that all the time, wouldn't they? You know, when we reverse engineer the Bible, doesn't it sound pretty incredible? You know what I mean? It sounds pretty amazing to think about, like, God, now I'm not saying that God doesn't communicate to us in other ways and use other means, but when you reverse engineer this and you're like, yeah, God has given us this, this, 
this collection, this library of literature that has information that he wants us to have. And he's given it to us and we've gotten it translated into whatever version that we want or whatever language that we know. And we can carry this thing around or we can have it on our phones and we can pretend we're reading it when we're actually scrolling on Facebook during church. But we have this information that God is, is granted us. And it's so funny because we just do not interact with Scripture in proportion to what we claim that it is. We just don't. Nobody does. Uh, and it's a wild thing to think about because I think about the fact that I would just love God to just kind of like download information. Now, the reason I think we don't is because the Bible doesn't work like we expect it to work. It doesn't operate. Because if we were thinking of like, God, I want you to give me information, we would not start off with some story of an ancient people and their history. We wouldn't have that in there. We wouldn't have these ancient ceremonial laws and customs. We just wouldn't do it the way God would do it. The Bible does not work like we expect it to work. And therefore, we sometimes are just not quite sure what to do with it. Now, I will say that as a church family here, I think... That we're pretty, like, I mean, we care about the Bible. It matters to us. We're interested in it. Like, you parents, you would be so happy with what your kids are learning down at the other end of the building. You'd be so happy. Like, my, uh, I, I already told you one Liam story. I'll tell you one more, and then that's it. That's my quota for the day. Uh, I took Liam to the, the, the Mall of America, the Nickelodeon area, and I was like, Liam, you could ride one ride. One ride. Because I don't want to pay for a bunch of rides. One ride. And so he does this like little mental thing. He's like, okay, so that means three rides, right? And I'm like, no, what ride? Why would one ride mean three rides? He's like, well, God is three and he is one. So, <laughs> so evidently they're learning a little bit about the Trinity back there too. And I mean, I'm just telling you, I'm telling you. We're, we're, I think we're very happy with, with uh, or, or we're, we're, we, we care a lot about the Bible, but we're still not quite sure exactly what to do with it. We emphasize biblical literacy, but we're just, we don't interact with Scripture in proportion to what we claim that it is. And I would say most of us in the room would say, yeah, I'd actually, I kind of wish I read the Bible more, but I've tried and it gets a little weird. It's been my, my uh, New Year's resolution for 12 years in a row and I get up to Leviticus and then there's this weird stuff about I just don't know what to do with that. And then I kind of lose interest or I flip over to the New Testament and I reread Romans for the hundredth time. It's just I don't quite know what to do with it because the Bible doesn't work like we expect it to. It's not if we were in God's position and we were trying to grant information, we would write a rule book or an encyclopedia. We wouldn't write what we have in Scripture. God is doing something different than what we expect. The... Uh, the first line in uh, The Princess Bride, in the actual book, not the, the movie, is a great line, and I think it fits a lot of Christians in the way they interact with the Bible. This is my favorite book in all the world, though I have never read it. And I just feel like that's a lot of, I, I know we've read it, and I know we read it, and I know we get the version verse of the day, and our, you know, a, a little push notification in our uh, phone every morning. I get that. I know all that. But to, to the degree to which we claim that this Bible is this, this collection of literature from God, I'm just not sure that we interact with it to the degree we claim uh, what it is. And, and I think that's so important for us to kind of think about and, 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 and deal with. So what we're doing is we're starting a new series called The Rebellious Bible. And the reason we called it that is because we want to talk, we, we talk from the Bible all the time, 
But we want to talk about the Bible and what the Bible is, what God is trying to accomplish through the Bible and why this is so valuable and important. And I know some of you are like, yes, I will concede, I will grant you it's valuable and important and we should read more. Can we just move along? But I think that we need to kind of do a little bit of digging and to kind of help ourselves understand what God is up to uh, so that we engage with the Bible, with the scriptures, the way that God intends us to. So that's what we're going to be doing for the next uh, few weeks. I'm going to make uh, two broad assumptions, two really broad assumptions in the room. So you may or may not agree with the things I'm about to say, but we're just going to kind of work in this series as if you do. Uh, Number one is we're going to say that the Bible is inspired by God. It's probably not the most controversial thing to say at church on a Sunday morning, But we're going to go ahead and and make that claim. The Bible is inspired by God. So in some form or fashion, God is like behind the compilation of this collection of works. You guys know this is a library, not a book, right? This is a whole bunch of books that we put together. God is behind this. He inspired the people that that authored it. What we have here is what God wants us to have. We we would believe that it's it's inspired. And and, and sure, yes, there's lots of questions stemming from that. But he's the the, uh, executive producer. I don't know what they do in a movie, but it feels like something that he might do with it. But he's kind of behind it. He's kind of pulling it all together and pulling the strings and making sure we have a compilation that he wants us to have. And the second assumption we're going to make is that if that is true, if it's inspired, then it's also authoritative, meaning that it has some claim on your life. So if you're opening it up and you're reading it and you see a verse that says, hey, you should forgive uh, 70 times 7, then that means you should do that. That means that there's some like, reason for you to try to arrange your, your moral formation around what the scriptures say. It, it has a, an authoritative claim on our life. So either you or someone who drove you to church this morning believes that. And so you, your life, to some degree, is built around this idea that God's word is authoritative. It kind of goes, uh, the, the way I think to sum up both these ideas is we're saying that God's Word gives us a sense of reality and clarity about life, which is often counterintuitive to the way that we would assume things work, like the last shall be first, that sort of thing. And so we're saying that he gives us this picture of reality, like God turns the lights on for us. Otherwise, we're stumbling around in the dark. And we sang the song out of Psalm 119, 105 this morning. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. That is what we're claiming about the scriptures, that it gives us this this map of the world. I walked into a wall a couple weeks ago at my house, (laughs) right into the wall. For some reason, in our family room, the light switch is on the opposite side of the room as the door. And we've been living in this house for seven years, and I think I've got this. I know where everything is in the dark, and I turn off the lights, and I confidently walk across the room headfirst into a corner. I don't know how I did it. And I just stood there for a second, leaning against the wall as I kind of got my bearings and thinking, man, I should not have turned off the light. But what we're saying is, is that God's word, uh, without it, we're going to walk into a wall of problem and trouble and immorality and difficulty. That's what we're saying. That's the claim that we're making as a church. This is a big assumption. I know. That's the claim that we're making. And so how do we engage with Scripture in order to give us this, like, map of reality in the world? All right. So 
God uses the Bible to turn the lights on. At first glance, I feel like this probably seems pretty simple. All right, Patrick, you open the scriptures up, you read it, and therefore you know the way the world is and works, and it's just that easy. It's just that simple. And, and, and it might go something like this. It might look like a bumper sticker. God said it. I believe it. That settles it, right? Done. We all agree. We're all on the same page. No problem at all. Well, it's not quite that simple because it turns out like the understanding portion of what God is saying can sometimes be quite difficult, in fact. Um, I wanted to... I really debated, you know, whether or not this illustration worked, but I, I have this, um, this picture, and what this is, uh, well, here, let's just dissect this image for a second. If you're listening to this online, you're just going to wonder, sorry, I, I apologize, we don't have video for our sermons yet. Uh, so everybody kind of understand, first of all, where is this picture taken? Australia, yeah, you can see the Sydney Opera House there at the bottom, all right? And then uh, in, in the top of the picture, there's some skywriting. Now, what does the sky writing, what does the sky writing say? God is love. God is love, all right? Yeah, God is love. Now, how many of you were like, it took you a little bit of a, okay, I, I kind of get it, but why is it upside down? Like, is that some sort of satanic church kind of thing or like, you know, upside down cross kind of thing? Here's what happened. So this church in Sydney decided that they would collect a bunch of money and they wanted to communicate a message to the town, the city of Sydney, and uh, they wanted everybody in Sydney to know that Jesus loves them. Now, we here, sitting in this room, are primed to understand this message. And the reason we are primed to understand this message is because we, as 21st century Americans who use like emojis and stuff like that, understand that that shape, it's upside down, but it's a heart. We understand that. If you flip that over, we know that that's a heart. And we've been to school, so we know that the equal sign is an equal sign. And then the upside-down cross, uh, we know that is a cross. But if you don't have any context for this message, it is very confusing. And the vast majority of Sydney residents were like, what in the world does an upside-down heart and a cross mean? Because... You had to be, if you were in the wrong part of the city, the message looked like it was upside down. So not only did you have to know that wasn't a lowercase t, you had to be standing at just the right position, and you kind of had to have a sense that God's love sent Jesus to the cross. You had to have some doctrinal basis for that understanding. But if you had none of that, if you had no context, you looked at that and you're like, upside down heart equals lowercase t that's also upside down? No idea what that meant. It's very confusing. You get it if you're standing in the right spot, looking at the right angle, and understand what those symbols mean once you turn them upside down. Sometimes reading scripture can be like looking at a symbol like that without any context, without any understanding exactly of what God is up to. In fact, in scripture itself, you will read passages of scripture where Jesus said something and people walked away utterly confused, completely scratching their heads or upset because they had completely misunderstood or conversely, they had completely understood and didn't like the implications of what God had said or what Jesus had said. 
I want to give you a, 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 just a, a, a great story for this. It's, it's both in Matthew and in the Gospel of Mark. We're going to read the account of uh, Mark in Mark chapter 4. This is a parable, although he doesn't tell them it's a parable right off the bat. He's teaching. He's got a big crowd. The crowd's so big that he actually calls for a boat, gets in the boat, away from shore a little bit, so that he can teach away from the crowd in the boat, shouting at them. And he tells them this like little scenario. So, so check this out. Mark chapter 4, uh, starting in verse 3. Listen. And that listen is kind of a key word. It's, a, it's an interesting word because it's like, you know, a parent who's like kind of had it with their kids. Like, listen up. I mean, that's why there's an exclamation point is because it's an emphatic word, even though there weren't exclamation points in, uh, in the original language. A farmer went out to sow his seed. And they're like, listen up. Now we're going to hear about agriculture. Okay. As he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path and the birds came and ate it up. Some fell along rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came up, the plants were scorched and they withered because they had no root. And you're halfway listening to this and you're like, okay, yeah, so where's this going? Other seed fell among the thorns which grew up and choked the plant so that they did not bear grain. Other seed fell among thorns which grew up. Oh, excuse me, that's the same one. Verse 8. Still other seed fell on good soil. It came up, grew, and produced a crop, and some multiplying 30, some 60, and some 100 times. Verse 9. Then Jesus said, whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. And then he walked off. Wait, that's just a story about how farming works, Jesus. What's the, what's the moral? Uh, don't plant on a place where people walk? What? I don't, are you, what are you talking about? Now we get it because we've read the Bible and we've read the Gospels and you've heard sermons preach about this. We get this, but to the apostles, to the disciples, to the 12, they're looking up at a skyline with skywriting. It's an upside down heart equal sign and upside down some lowercase t. They're like, what is that? What is that? And so they let Jesus finish. He walks off and they go on. Verse 10, when he was alone, the 12 and the others around him asked him about the parables. And they're like, Jesus, what are you talking about? He told them the secret of the kingdom of God has been given to you. But to those on the outside, everything is said in parables. Listen to this. Verse 12, so that they may ever be seeing but never perceiving and ever hearing, but never understanding. Otherwise, they might turn and be forgiven. What? So Jesus, do you see what he's saying? First of all, let me just say this. This is a little bit of an aside, but it's really important because sometimes in churches we get this weird idea that the Old Testament is uh, not important somehow and we can just jump right into the New Testament. Jesus is quoting Isaiah here, and he's quoting a prophecy of Isaiah. And I just want you to know that the more you engage with the Old Testament, the more you'll understand how Jesus was shaped and his theology was shaped, and the more you'll understand some of the things that he was teaching. Because he literally sometimes just takes a word and references a word from an Old Testament passage or story, and people knew what he was talking about because they had... They had 2,000 years of context. And we're just like, nah, forget that Old Testament. I'm going to read the New. But the Old Testament gives us context for what Jesus was introducing. Little hobby horse. I'll get off it. But understand what Jesus is saying here. Jesus is telling them that he is deliberately, get this, he is deliberately communicating in a way that people who were not open or humble or poised to listen 
would totally miss what he was saying. That's wild. Like when we think about preaching, you know, I believe it or not, I think about preaching quite a bit. But when we think about preaching, like the idea is, is try to make it as accessible to everyone. And so I, I feel pretty good when, when someone tells me like, hey, I liked your sermon and also my child liked your sermon. Because I feel like, oh, that's great because we, we, we got a wide range. Multiple generations were able to engage with the message. And Jesus was like, I feel pretty good when people who don't want to know what I'm talking about don't get it at all. Walk away confused. That's what he's saying. He's, he's quote, quotes Isaiah. It's just so unbelievable. And I think it's remarkable because what Jesus is saying is if you don't, don't want to get it, you won't. If you don't want to get what he's teaching, you won't get it. Oh, okay, but I, I, I want to get it. Mm, do you? It's a good question. I think, uh, I think we think, and this is a pretty prevalent assumption, modern uh, 20th century assumption, we think information will bring about transformation. We think what will solve people's problems is education. That will solve their problems. And I, education is great. Don't hear me dismissing education. But education itself does not bring about transformation because apparently it turns out lots of people do lots of things that they know they should not do. Yeah. Education doesn't bring about transformation. There is something about our hearts that have to be engaged in the process. And if they are not, then we will never get ourselves to the point where we are downloading what God wants us to download, despite the fact that we have access to his truth. It is something that begins and ends right here in our hearts. Oh, it's kind of incredible to think about. I mean, being shaped by scripture is not first about knowledge. It isn't. It is about, it is about our hearts. Now, knowledge is important. Let's read it. Let's learn it. It's important, but it's about our hearts. When I was uh, when I was in elementary school, I uh, I loved building forts in in my backyard, and my dad had a uh, pile of lumber in the garage, and I remember I had built some you know big elaborate fort in the backyard. Anybody else ever do that? Forts, tree houses, like all, I had all kinds of them. I mean, I I could have lived outside my backyard for years, never needed anything. And uh, I remember building this big, you know, I'd taken plywood and two by fours. And my dad got home from work. And I remember thinking, you know, I'll uh, go up to him. And, hey, Dad, do you mind if, um, if I use some of that wood in the garage to build a fort? Now, the problem was is that I had already used all of it. <laughs> it was fully nailed into place in the trees and everything. It all had already been used. I didn't really need an answer from my dad. I needed a specific answer from my dad. And so I needed to ask the question in a way that I would only get that one answer. Because I had already made the decision to do what I wanted to do. Jesus says in Mark chapter 4, verse 13, he said to them, Don't you understand this parable? That your heart is the most important piece when it comes to understanding what God is talking about. Don't you understand this parable? Because if you don't understand this, how will you understand any parable? And he's saying this is key. This is key. Because what we often do is we decide what we want to believe. We build our fort. And then we go to the Bible to give us the answer that we already need to have. Because we've already decided what we're going to believe. Um, 
Let me give you a real life example of how we build the fort and then ask permission. Uh, Joshua chapter 6. Joshua chapter 6 is uh, the story of the, the, the destruction of Jericho. Most of you grew up around church and you kind of have a sense of, of what this is about, right? So uh, just feel free to uh, shout out uh, how, how many years had the Hebrew people been in the wilderness before they decide that the, God says that you can go into to, uh, Canaan and take over? How many years? 40 years. Yeah, biblical literacy. Here we go. You guys are great. All right, now let's, you guys would be very proud of your kids too. I quizzed them a couple weeks ago on like some obscure stuff out of Genesis and they, they knew it. Most of them knew it. Um, so they come to this city of Jericho, right? Big walls, pretty impressive, pretty impressive city. And they're like, I don't, how, what are we going to do? God gives them some instructions and they're a little bit odd. So what's, what does God tell them to do uh, for, to, to, to take out Jericho? Yeah, walk around Jericho once a day, walk around it once a day and blow trumpets just once a day for seven days, right? Six days, correct. Ooh, yeah. And then on the seventh day, what do they do? Walk around seven times. Oh, you guys, like, you guys are so good. Like, you know, you, I know you just live for moments like this, don't you? You're like, I've been studying for 40 years for this moment. Can I tell you just a super, 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 super quick story? In uh, youth group a couple years ago, we memorized the judges. Do you remember that? We memorized the judges, like in the book of Judges. Yeah, that book, the judges. And uh, for what end? Let's try it. Let's see. They memorized the Old Testament. Let's, let's, give, let's memorize the book of Judges. One of our students went to York College and was in their Bible class. And this teacher was like, hey, guess what? We're going to learn about the judges. And this student who had grown up in our youth group was like, oh, I know all the judges. And the teacher's like, yeah, whatever. Nobody knows the judges. No, no, no. I really do. And then that teacher challenged them to come up in front of the class and list off the judges. And she did. She got up and all the judges. And it was like mic drop moment and then walk off. And I'm like, you know, we live for a moment. Moments like that when all that like Bible trivia can just pay off in the moment of glory. Anyway. So they march around Jericho seven times. The seventh day, the walls fall down. So when you read a story like that, all right, cool. All right, very cool. Uh, there are a variety of ways people view that story. It's like skywriting. And it give, what do we, how do we interpret? How do we understand that story? There are a variety of ways. One person sees these stories and reshapes them into some kind of personal success formula. And I listen to a lot of preaching. I study a lot of preaching. And I know exactly how a lot of preachers would interact with a story like this. They would break it down into a three-step Formula, and each step would begin with the letter P. And it would be something like, we have a problem, we have a promise, and we have a partner. And if you want to break down the walls in your life, you need to walk around it, maybe? In fact, this is a little aside, but there are groups and churches and Christians who believe in the concept of a Jericho march in order to deal with the problems in their lives. Which is fine. If you need to walk around your problems, that's fine. But if your problem is your spouse, that could be a little weird. Just <laughs> blowing the trumpet every once in a while. And then Saturday, seven times. I'm 
not saying we shouldn't see ourselves in these stories, but the text is not trying to give us a three-step, thinly disguised self-help process with the veneer of Bible. That's not what the text is up to. And, and, and I've been guilty of this approach, too, when I read Old Testament stories, just trying to reduce them to some, like, moral nugget that I can, like, mine and then just pass on uh, to everybody else. Secondly, another person reads this story, and far from seeing some three-step, you know, process, they're horrified by this story. People who haven't grown up in church and aren't kind of conditioned to read it, some of the ways that we are and conditioned to look at some things and ignore some other things. You read Joshua chapter 6, verse 21. Listen to this. They devoted the city to the Lord and destroyed with the sword every living thing in it. Ooh, that sounds bad, but surely they spared the, the women and children. No, men, women, young, old. Well, surely they spared the animals. No, cattle, sheep, and donkeys. Like, if you wanted to get, if you wanted to try to, like, that sounds bad. Isn't that genocide? And if you didn't grow up in a certain way of reading that, you would read that and you're like, wow. Now, listen, does the Bible raise some pretty, pretty big, sticky questions that we have to wrestle with? Yes, absolutely. Are we trying to minimize that? No, not at all. But is that what it's about? It, it, it's strange, but. We need to dig into that a little bit more. The third way a person could look at a story like this is they do a little editing, a little rewriting, take out the death, add some talking vegetables, and voila! It's a kid's story. And, and, and I'm all about VeggieTales. I think VeggieTales is awesome. You know, I don't think, you know, peas with French accents were throwing Slurpees at the Israelites. But I, I, I'm just saying... The, it's no offense to Veggie Tales, maybe a little offense, just a little offense. But for most of the big Old Testament stories, like the story of the flood and David Goliath and Jonah, that the primary way that we think of these stories is as children's stories, and they are not children's stories. Can children learn from them and interact with them? Yes. And do we want to kind of like not emphasize the the blood and gore? Sure. But there are they children's stories? No. But see. I think adults have distanced themselves from the importance of these stories because we've relegated them to children's books and we've made plush animals out of them. And some of that is fine. But let me just say, if God had let the MPAA, the rating board for movies, rate the Bible, my mom would not let me watch it. Would not. Your mom wouldn't either. It's got some stuff in it. And we have to learn how do we interact with Scripture. Now, all these represent real ways that people have really interacted with Scripture. So, uh, let's, let's wrap this up a little bit, because I'm sensing one of two reactions maybe in the room. Some of you are saying, okay, sure, Patrick, I agree. If people view the Bible in a way differently than I do, then that's silly. Sure, I, I view it correctly, and other people view it incorrectly. Okay, good for you. Second, second uh, uh, implication or second assumption I kind of sense people might have, if it's so easy to miss the point of the Bible, then what hope do any of us have? Like, I just shouldn't read it anyway because I'm just going to miss the point and, you know, I'm not smart enough to figure it out. I want you to see something that James said, James, the brother of, of Christ. And I think James was referencing this parable that Jesus told in Mark chapter 4. He says, therefore, James, therefore, get rid of all moral filth. That's a tough way of saying that, but kind of the, the junk in your life. Get rid of that stuff and the evil that is so prevalent and humbly accept the word planted. The word accept and the word planted both show up in Mark's account of the, the, the parable of the farmer. 
I think that's why he's referencing it. Humbly accept the word planted in you, which can save you. I firmly believe that the, the only difference between someone that gets it and someone that doesn't is not whether or not you can ace a Bible trivia quiz. That's not what it's about. It's not how often you read the scripture, but I think we can all be honest, we should probably read it more often, right? It's not whether or not you have the insider language and you can interpret the upside down heart and the lowercase t. In fact, I think we should turn all this on its head, and I think it's not so much about what we know about the Bible, but it's what we ask of the Bible. When you read scripture, when was the last time you read scripture and asked God to show you where you're wrong? show you where you need to change. I can tell you I have spent a lot of time reading scripture to prove somebody else wrong in some debate, but it is not very often I have read scripture to prove myself wrong. God, please show me where I am wrong. Humbly accept the word planted in you. When was the last time we read the Bible for God to reveal some need for repentance? God, please show me where I need to repent. Hmm. <laughs> he will answer that prayer. It is rough. He will answer that prayer. You, we talked about un un unresolved prayers last week. You, got, you want an answer to prayer? Ask God to show you where you need repentance. He will answer that one. I don't think we have to be perfect in our study, in our knowledge. We just have to be willing. Let me, uh, let me wrap up. When I was planning this series, working through it, I was reading through the book of uh, Jeremiah in, in my, my morning time. And uh, <laughs> I, this is one of those things that um, it's, if you've read through the book of Jeremiah, it can be uh, a bit of a slog. It can be a bit of a marathon. For those of us that don't like to go running, it can be like, oh, man, you can be like, oh, another 40 chapters, man. This is tough because Jeremiah is long and it's most of this like anxiety inducing Hebrew destruction poetry. And it's mostly Jeremiah saying, you guys are awful. Babylonians are coming. And it's just chapter after chapter after chapter of this. And I listen, I love the Bible, which is very helpful in my line of work. I love it. But I'm sitting there in the quiet hours of the morning with my cup of coffee, and I'm just like, I get it. They're bad. They need to repent. Can we move on? Could this not have been like one chapter, and it's 50-some chapters? So I'm reading it. I'm reading it. Let me, with that glowing endorsement, let me read you some excerpts. <laughs> Jeremiah chapter 14, verse 12. Although they fast, I will not listen to their cry. Though they offer burnt offerings and grain offerings, the Old Testament way of interacting, worshiping God, I will not accept them. Instead, I will destroy them with the sword, famine, and plague. Ugh, okay. All right, chapter after chapter of this stuff. Jeremiah 17, verse 5. Cursed is the one who trusts in man. Because here is the problem, actually. They kept, like, every time the Babylonians would threaten, they would be, God would be like, stand firm, I'm on your side. And they'd be like, no, we've got to make alliances with Egypt. And so God would be like, well, you're just going to get destroyed. Anyway, whole thing, whole thing. Um, Cursed is the one who trusts in man, who draws strength from mere flesh, and whose heart turns away from the Lord. And I'm literally sitting there reading this with my morning cup of coffee, and I'm like, man, I'm glad I'm not like those Israelites. Those guys didn't trust in God. <laughs> those guys were ridiculous. Man, but can we move on? Because, you know, surely I trust in God. Then I got to Jeremiah 42, verse 18, chapter after chapter after chapter of this. This is what the Lord Almighty 
Uh, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. As my anger and wrath have been poured out on those who lived in Jerusalem, so my wrath will be poured out on you when you go to Egypt. And I'm sitting there. It's like, it's early. Nobody else is awake. And I'm having my cup of coffee. And I'm just overwhelmed with conviction reading that verse. Do you guys see it? No. Because <laughs> he didn't spend the, the last six weeks reading through Jeremiah. I'm overwhelmed with conviction because this is why. Because I realize oh, every time my peace and safety is threatened, I go running to some bad habits that I have that are mistrusting in the Lord. I do the exact same thing. I do the exact same thing. But I couldn't figure it out in Jeremiah chapter 1 or Jeremiah chapter 2 or 3 or 20. It took me till Jeremiah chapter 42 where God is like just working away at my hardness of heart before I realized, oh, I am just like Israel. I'm the same guy. I would do the same things. <laughs> and in morning cup of coffee, repentance, one of the most profound experiences and moments of, of transformation in, in, you know, in the last 12 months was over Jeremiah. And I started off Jeremiah thinking, man, this is boring. But God was doing something. Doing, he was working away at my unwilling and unrepentant heart. Now, I know when we read passages like this, you know, maybe you, doesn't mean anything to you, but I just want us to understand that it's not in Jeremiah chapter 1 where the word may get planted. It may be in Jeremiah chapter two, 42 where it comes to fruition, but there isn't a shortcut. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to get your Bible out this week. And I want you to take your phone and turn it completely off. Or I want you to take it outside, open the door, and throw it down the street. And then sit down. And just even for 10 minutes, I'll humbly receive the implanted word which is able to save you. Come back next week. We're going to talk about the point of the Bible. The point of the Bible. You're going to want to be here for that. Let's pray.